0: welcome to vows to keep radio with david and tracy sellers the mission of vows to keep is to help couples develop a biblically healthy marriage through the application of god's word and a deeper relationship with him they desire to help you and your spouse grow closer to each other and closer to the heart of god's design for your marriage now here's david and tracy with today's broadcast
1: hey there we are david and tracy sellers and we're continuing today in a series on how to take action against depression in your marriage. Maybe you're the one in your marriage who is feeling downcast and full of anxiety, or maybe it's your spouse. Either way, we're glad you're here with us today.
2: Our first broadcast, we've really focused on the condition of our heart has everything to do with how we feel about our life. If you didn't get a chance to hear that broadcast, we'd encourage you to go out to any of the major podcast networks, and search for to keep Radio, catch that broadcast.
1: And as you listen to that first one, you're going to realize that David and I have both dealt with depression. David more as a young man, as an older teenager, and in his college years, and me as a young mom as I was moved far away from my support system. And we want to continue to tell you today about our journey through to the other side of depression.
2: As our life journey continued and we started to get trained by the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, I kept meeting authors that were going deeper than a prescription medication could touch. They were doing that because they recognized the problems that we face as humans go deeper than our biology, the solutions have to match that. Now, obviously I can't tell you about all the amazing people that we've learned from, but I want to focus on the two causes and two of the solutions that emerged. Here's the first, we're the loneliest society in human history. There was a recent study that asked Americans, do you feel like you're no longer close to anyone and 39% of people agreed that that was where they were. I've spent a lot of time discussing this with people from all different walks. Commonly, wherever hurting people are, depression is there as well. And I thought a lot about one question that these people in common posed to me. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why aren't we alive? Now, for those that don't know, I've spent my professional career in healthcare, and over half of that specifically in the area of medication management. My job has been to innovate, like predictive analytics and building tools to make medication management faster and more accurate. Here, I got to study prescribing patterns by patients and doctor types, and I interviewed prescribers to find out what would help them manage medication safely and efficiently. And one conversation in 2014 really stood out to me. This doctor had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. He was a psychiatrist and I learned he was clearly not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thought they gave some relief to some people, but he could see two things. First, his patients were depressed and anxious a lot of time for totally understandable reasons like loneliness and marriage troubles. He highlighted both those. And secondly, although the drugs were giving some relief to some people, for many, they just didn't solve the problem, the underlying problem. After hearing this, I decided there had to be a different approach. Soon after, a man and his wife came to meet with us at Vows to Keep, and this husband felt very trapped. I mean, he saw that the only option for his wife's depression was that she would start some good meds, and she really wasn't ready to do that. He explained that his wife had been shut away in their home with their young children, and And this crippling depression and anxiety had been overwhelming her ever since that phase of their life really started several years before. But it wasn't just her that was depressed. Now, he was too manly to say this, but his resulting anger was so real that by clinical standards of most of the doctors today, he probably would have been diagnosed as depressed as well. When he came the third or fourth time, I told him, listen, I'm going to ask you, To come to a local restaurant once a week, we're gonna meet on Saturday mornings with a group of other guys that are also a little bit disheartened and concerned as husbands. Not that any of these guys necessarily saw their lives in a depressed way, but our goal wasn't gonna be to talk about how miserable we are. We're gonna read God's word. We're gonna figure out meaningful action steps that God is calling you to do within your marriage and your home. The first time that this group met with this new fella, it was overwhelming for him. He was quiet. But when we read from the book of James and God's word, the group started talking and they were like, man, how does this apply to our lives? How can we be doers of God's word toward our wives? They started to get their fingers in the Bible. They started to learn the tensions of being a husband and a dad and and the seasons that we go through in both of those things. They started to form a group. They started to form a community. Now the biblical term is church. Not the kind with walls and a formal name, the kind that forms where two or three are gathered, they started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would call them and say, Hey, are you okay? They were working to help drive accountability day after day. Now in Christian circles, this approach is called being in a small group, but in clinical terms, this is called social prescribing and social prescribing is a concept that you generally hear about in the medical communities, like in Europe, as if it's something new. And when you talk to people in the clinical world, they would cite growing evidence suggesting that it can actually produce real and meaningful declines in depression and anxiety.
1: Let's go to Hebrews 10.23 that says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we professed, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching.
2: And one day I remember sitting in the restaurant that these husbands and I were meeting and thinking so often when women or men feel down in this culture, what do we say to them? We say, you just need to be you. You need to be your best self. You need to take to be happy. It doesn't come from giving. And I've realized that actually what we should be saying to people is don't be yourself, be us, be, we, be part of God's body. The solution to these problems doesn't lie in drawing more and more inward as an isolated individual. That's partly what gets us into this crisis. That is Satan's game.
1: Jesus lays it out for us in Luke six thirty eight: Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. Satan hates that truth, doesn't he? We see that. He wants us to be isolated. Jesus says, but with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. He's basically calling us to love like he loved.
2: The answer comes in reconnecting with someone bigger than you, Jesus. The answer comes in having accountability with others who desire to serve him as Lord and Savior as well as you. And that really connects to one of the other great causes of depression and anxiety that I want to talk to you about. Everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and and made us physically feel terrible. And I don't say this with any sense of superiority. This group of guys that I'm talking about that meets over breakfast, I'm on a strict oatmeal ration because for years, I ate for two people. And I'm talking about eating things that were full of fat and sugar and grease. Tracy and I, in the last three months, have collectively lost 45 pounds and I have like 30 more to go. And that sounds pretty good until you realize all the bad things that I did to get there. But just like junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick.
1: For thousands of years, God's word has pointed out that if you think life is about money and status or showing off, you're going to feel this constant shortcoming. It's going to leave you wanting more because it doesn't satisfy But weirdly, hardly anyone has scientifically investigated this. Maybe because as a society, it's very uncool to call someone else's values, quote unquote junk. It's very uncool to suggest that there is but one truth. It's unpopular to say we might actually be in control of our own unhappiness.
2: It's far more popular to suggest that by taking a pill, you can solve your depression. In fact, if you could take a pill for weight loss, everyone would do that too. And they're out there, but are they effective? The most basic of junk values started covertly when advertising became a thing. The marketing message, since we made it easy to hawk things on TV in the 1950s, was selfish materialism. The more you believe you can buy and display your way out of sadness and into a good life, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. And now with social media as a society, we have become even more driven by these beliefs. We take 27 selfies to get that perfect look for everyone to see on our Facebook page. As I thought about this, I realized it's really not a new problem. God's word speaks to it because it's not new.
1: We see in Proverbs 11:25 that a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It sounds so opposite, David, than all the messages we're getting these days. 2 Corinthians 9.7 adds to that. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And we are happier as a cheerful giver. I bet you've experienced that in your own life. I know I have. And 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God.
2: I hope you hear a recurring theme here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, it says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. That's not what we believe in this day and age. It's like we've all been fed a lie since birth, a lie of junk food for the soul. We've been trained to look for happiness in all the wrong places. And just like Oreos and Cheetos don't meet your nutritional needs, and actually makes you feel pretty bad. Junk values don't meet your emotional or spiritual needs. God says, give of yourself. The world says, take for yourself. And these values, they take away from the good life you're in pursuit of. On one hand, I found this really challenging. I could see how often in my own life, when I felt down, I tried to remedy it with some kind of grand external solution.
1: Or just try to hide from it sometimes.
2: Yeah. If I looked harder, I could see why that didn't really work well for me. But I also thought, isn't this kind of obvious? Isn't it predictable? If I said to everyone hearing my voice, none of you are going to lie in your deathbed and think about all the shoes you had that you showed off all the Facebook friends that you really didn't interact with in real life. Anyhow, all the retweets, none of that's going to matter. You're going to think about the moments of love, of purpose and of real connection in your life. But when in doubt, we turn to Ecclesiastes in God's word, and we can see a life on this journey from one point to another. The same kind of materialistic journey that we are on, but super accelerated.
1: We're talking about Solomon, and if we look at his life, boy, we can learn a lot. He articulated his starting point early in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Yes, it definitely is. Indicating the utter futility and meaningless of life as he saw it. He's talking about the worldly life around him.
2: The kind of free world sex the world sells us in advertising today. <laughs> yep. Solomon tried that too. In first Kings chapter 11, it says, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart from God. At certain points we learned that nothing made sense to him because he had already tried all the remedies he could. He tried work. He tried pleasure. He tried sex. He tried intellect. He tried to alleviate his sense of feeling pointless in the world. However, even in Solomon's desperate search for meaning and significance in life, God remained present. For instance, we read that God provides the food and the drink and the work, both the sinner and the righteous person live in God's sight. God's deeds are eternal, and God empowers people to enjoy his provision.
1: Yeah, you can find all those things in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 3, and 5. Ultimately, the great truth of this book lies in the acknowledgement of God's ever-present hand on our lives. Even when injustice and uncertainty threaten to overwhelm us, we can trust him and follow after him. Look at chapter 12 for that.
2: So how do I, as a depressed person or someone trying to help a depressed person, apply this? We're all desiring meaning in life. Often that search takes us along winding up and down paths with bursts of satisfaction that shine bright for a time, but eventually fade. In one sense, I guess it's kind of satisfying to see that experience echoed through Ecclesiastes. When we attempt to find meaning in the pursuit of pleasure, the commitment to a job, we eventually find that each of these pursuits end in a dead end. The Bible shows a man who lived through this process and came out the other side with a lot more wisdom and some seasoned perspective. In our lives today, we're surrounded by the temptation to proclaim life's ultimate emptiness.
1: We see in Isaiah 61:3 that God sent Jesus to give us beauty for ashes, to give us the oil of joy for mourning. He sent Jesus to give us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Boy, I'd sure like an exchange like that. How about you? He's called us to be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. For us as Christians, we need to renew our minds to trust God in even the worst of situations, even an outcome that we don't like. Our hearts can be downcast. We've all experienced that heaviness. And Satan tries to rob us of our hope. You've had that heavy, oppressive feeling. We all have. Satan is trying to steal our faith, trying to take us down into isolation and anxiety. Depression tries to come over us like a dark, heavy cloud. In this, Satan causes us to not reach out to others. He wants to make us feel alone. He tries to distract us from our relationship with God. Life is destined to remain unsatisfying apart from our recognition of God's intervention. It only remains to be seen whether or not we will place our trust in his hands. Have you struggled with misplaced pursuits in life? We definitely have. Does your life lack the meaning and purpose you desire? Hear the words of Solomon, that they might encourage you to place your trust solely in God today.
2: At some level, as Christians, I think we probably all know these things. We know them so well that they become cliche, but we just don't live by them. So why would we know something so profound but not live by it? Because we live in a world run by a force that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, Jesus. Even the Pharisees proved that this was true. They did all the religious things they thought they should and missed the man who was the point of it all, Jesus. Were they happy? Absolutely not. Again, this is in some ways not a new thing. It's just a concept being refined with more effective tools against us. And Jesus wanted to challenge us as believers to share how a relationship with him can disrupt that lie that society has been giving us since childhood. The same lie that Solomon believed. I'll tell you one more example. And I really want to urge everyone listening to try this with their family, to try this with their friends, with our group of guys coming together for a series of sessions over a period of time. One time I asked them about a moment in their life that they actually found meaning and purpose. For different people, it was different things. For some people, it was serving in their marriage, being a father, teaching their kids new things, playing music in the worship band, maybe writing, helping someone on the side of the road. I'm sure everyone hearing my voice can picture some point in their life where they saw a lot of purpose in what they were doing. How could you dedicate more of your life to pursuing these moments of meaning and purpose unless to buy in the junk that will never fulfill you so you can put it on social media to try to get other people to be full of jealousy? Two things came from this group of Christian men, purpose and giftedness. What we found just having these meetings every Saturday morning was getting us to articulate biblical values and then giving us determination to act on them and and check in with each other on that. This led to a shift in our homes and the values that we followed, not just the values that we knew of. It took these guys away from the crazy maker of Satan's depression, generating seeking happiness in the wrong places. And instead shifting our focus toward the more meaningful and nourishing values that God gives, which naturally lift us out of depression, not with one meeting, not instantly, but sustainably, maybe not perfect, but measurably different. So why did it take me so long to see this for what it is to actually see that I play a part in changing other people's lives? Because when you explain what I've just shared to people, it's not rocket science, right? At some level, we already know these things. So why do we find it so hard to understand? I think there's probably many reasons, but like we talked about in the first broadcast, I think one of the reasons is that we have to change our understanding of what depression and anxiety actually are. There may be some biological aspects to depression and anxiety, but if we allow the biology to become the whole picture as I did for so long, and I would argue our culture has pretty much done most of my life. We're implicitly saying to people, your pain doesn't mean anything. It's just a malfunction. It's like a glitch in a computer program. It's just a wiring problem in your head. But I was only able to start changing my life when I realized depression is not a malfunction. It's a signal.
1: When I was feeling depressed as a young mom, far away from my support system, my depression was a signal, not that I needed medication, but that I needed to connect with God and I needed to understand his clear purpose for my life. We feel depressed for lots of reasons, and they can be hard to see in the throes of those feelings. I understand that really well from personal experience. But with the right help, we can understand these problems, and we can fix these problems together. That's why God created the body of Christ. That's what David was talking about. But to do that, the very first step is we have to stop insulting these signals by saying they're a sign of madness or purely biological. We need to start listening to these signals because they're telling us something we really need to hear. It's only when we see these as signals that we're going to begin to see the liberating, nourishing, and deeper solutions that God has to offer us.
2: You're so right, Tracy. To defeat this oppression, we've got to realize what are our idols and what it might be the sins that are in our lives, because those things have a cost. Once we make those things right in our lives and we line those things up with God's word, well, the next thing we need to do is be thankful to Jesus Christ for what he's done for you. Grace upon grace. Now, if you're not saved, now is the time to change that. But if you are, thank him for forgiveness that builds a life of health. Thank him and thank him again. Remember what we read in Psalm 42 last week? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? The response continues, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God.
1: This is where we can start today by putting our hope in God, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and then praising him, thanking him, remembering he is your savior and he is your God. We've been giving more and more homework, and we're going to continue to do that today. What we want you to do is this, to make a list of all the good things in your life. And remember this truth from James 1.17, as you write every single one of those things down, that every good and perfect gift comes from your heavenly father. We've got to put off self-pity and put on thankfulness if we want to escape this oppression. Because let's face it, life circumstances, they are going to go up and down. We can't control that. But we are commanded in First Thessalonians 5.18 to, in everything, give thanks. That's God's will for us.
2: As Christians, we do have a very tough time doing this, but this is what Paul shows us. Being free from depression, even in those unpleasant situations we talked about in our last broadcast. Here he is sitting in jail, doing the very thing God asked him to do. And that might be you. You might be right in the line of fire at this moment in your life. You realize it's a matter of where you're looking for your reward. I think we've all been tempted when things get difficult and we're serving God to start complaining and moaning and blaming God for not taking us out of the situation that we're in. Now is the time to repent. In Acts 16, we see Paul praising and rejoicing. He's loving and spreading the gospel. He's not inward focused. He's moved to being outward and heavenly focused. Depression points everything inward. If we look up, we start to reach out. Not for help, because we already have that, but to reach out to love others. These are the longstanding joy givers that we need, even in those times of great oppression in our lives. This is a very high bar for us. Satan loves it when we as Christians complain because it waters down our message. It makes this Jesus thing seem like an unattractive idea to the people who onlook our lives. His goal is to get Christians to say, God, it's your fault. Faith is what you need to resist the enemy. And because you're good at resisting, that shows you're good at being faithful. James two talks about being someone who does the good deeds in faith. Therefore, what we need to do is now have the courage and perseverance to continue to resist the temptation to avoid reaching out to our brothers and sisters in Christ for support. That's not whining, but know that God has given encouragers to you. As we close today, if you or your spouse is in depression, now is the time to lean forward, not back. Now is not the time to feel powerless. Now is the time to look at the cause, to even look at the cause's cause. Look for anything direct and indirect that doesn't align in your life with Scripture. The reality is that these lies, they never deliver. Make changes toward a God-honoring life and be aware that it may not always be easy, but it will make it possible and it will make it rewarding. Romans 8 reminds us that those that are dominated by a sinful nature think about sinful things. But But those that are controlled by the Holy Spirit Think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Vows to Keep
0: is supported by a team which includes biblical coaches, writers, and pastoral advisors. If you have a desire to serve marriages in your community, we would love to hear from you. Vows to Keep is a not-for-profit marriage ministry designed to bring God's encouraging truth to the marriages of our area. As a not for profit organization, our commitment to Christ like marriages includes providing much needed services regardless of a couple's financial ability to offset the cost of Vows to Keep operations. If you are unable to donate your time or abilities but would like to help support Vows to Keep financially, visit vowstokeep.com and click on the donate link. Like what you heard today on Vows to Keep radio? Listen to more life changing broadcasts at vowstokeep.com. This program is sponsored by Vows to Keep of Zanesfield, Ohio.